wonder when the last time was that you uh, encountered a bona fide conspiracy theorist. You were at a party, maybe you got pinned down or something, but what happens is, is they, the conversation begins innocently enough. The, 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 the self-styled prophet begins to sort of present to you a, a slightly different take on something that you may know, but you don't really know. Uh, my wife, were she here this morning, would laugh at this because she knows how susceptible I am to conspiracy theorists. I'm fascinated by these things, you know. Eventually, for me, the theory just starts sounding like it makes sense. Uh, suddenly, this person is not really crazy. They've succeeded. And, you know, we suddenly go home, and the next thing I know, I'm flipping through the Internet looking for articles and backup data to sort of figure it all out. Um, I, you know, maybe people can or cannot be uh, sort of forgiven for getting sucked into these things, but I remember the first time it became fascinating to me was when I was in college and studying the presidency of Richard Nixon and his whole Watergate scandal. Um, you know, the thing that made that fascinating about me was the fact that, that people seemed to be validated from the sort of 1960s counterculture that, you know, there really is a political machinery out there that are not telling us everything, you know? And after 1975, it's almost as if they felt like they had a precedent to suggest that, like, are our leaders really telling us the truth? Is the reality that I know actually, well, real? <laughs> well, I want to suggest to you this morning that there's a sense in which we are all conspiracy theorists because we live our life with a set of contexts, uh, with a way of kind of grouping people, uh, with a set of governing rules and assumptions that help us make sense of the data that we see around us. Maybe it's not fear-based and conspiratorial, the way which some people can be, but nevertheless, there's still a grid, a sort of way of seeing the world around us that you use to make sense of it, what the philosophers call a worldview. I had someone in my office a while back who said to me, you know, Les, you just don't understand the world in which I live. Well, they didn't mean the literal world. They were talking about this this sort of world order, the context, the the different people and the rules that they live by. In other words, there is something at any given moment in your life that is socializing you. It's giving to you and offering itself to you a way of understanding your surroundings, uh, uh, providing you with rules that govern your behavior and how you do things. You see this most vividly in people's freshman year in college. We have a helpful sort of illustration for this. My guess is, for the vast majority of freshmen who arrive in in town, um, they're presented with an entirely different world than they grew up with. Probably it is more sort of uh, ethnically and religiously diverse than anything that they've encountered up until that time. There's certainly a set of different social strata that exist between those who are in and those who are out. And what happens is, is it lays waste to people. And you find yourself having that conversation like, well, did you hear about so-and-so? Do you know what they're doing up there in Oxford? <sighs> I can't imagine. And, of course, we old people say things like, oh, these colleges today. It's not the colleges. It's the fact that there's a different world order that sort of governs behavior in different contexts. Well, Luke chapter 5 ended with this little line where Jesus tells us that new stuff really doesn't fit into old molds. This is the way Jesus puts it at the end of chapter 5. Look down there. He says, you can't put new wine 
into old wineskins. What is he saying? He's saying, I'm coming to bring a new world order that will not be contained by your attempts at religiosity up until this time. Does that make sense? I don't fit in the categories that I know you wanted to deploy to sort of figure out your life through a sort of gentle, unexamined, maybe spiritual coasting. I don't fit in that world. And so Jesus comes to break ground on a new Israel, a new community of people that will be radically different from the human community that surrounds him. So I want to look at chapter 6 of the Gospel of Luke under three headings. Number one, Jesus gives us a sense of a new rest. Number two, he's constituting a new people. And number three, he's granting us a new rule. A new rest, a new people, and a new rule, a new law. Number one, a new rest. You really can't understand verses 1 through 11 of chapter 6 without considering exactly what the Sabbath day had turned into for these Jewish people. Jewish leaders were not just strict about what you could and could not do on Sundays. Uh, what they had done was they had made uh, sort of their, their Sabbath observance an ethnic marker. Uh, it was that sort of thing that they used to distinguish themselves from the rest of the people out there who aren't quite as spiritual as we are, from the hoi polloi, you know, who do it in their particular way. This is what you're going to do if you're going to be much more pious than those people, right? And of course, in the, spirit, in the process, they had completely killed the spirit of the day. Um, the Sabbath had become this drudgery that was a lifeless burden for God's people. But as it turns out, that was just the opposite of why it was instituted in the first place. Uh, there's an extended discussion on this in the book of Hebrews later on in the New Testament, especially verses 9 and 10, where we find out there that the Sabbath day command was actually rooted in God's delight over the completeness of His own creation. Here's what the author there says. He says, So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. So what he's saying is, is the rest that we are commanded to take on the Lord's day is like unto that rest that God took. Um, this week I was actually listening to a sermon uh, that my good friend Brian Habig in uh, Greenville, South Carolina, was preaching on this very passage. And he was talking about, you know, God's rest. And he says, you know, God doesn't have a body uh, that, by which he needs rest. You know, he, it wasn't like at the creation he was like, you know, whew, you know, those planets, uh, that took it out of me. Um, I'm going to need a nap. No, God's rest in that context was to look out over the created order and to see its completeness, to see its, its, its unity, its perfection, and to delight in it. And the delight in what had been accomplished is the rest that God is talking about. But see, the Pharisees, because they turned it into this ethnic badge, were really sort of tipping their hand that when it really came down to it, their identity was not secure. They didn't know who they were, which is why they're propping it up with all this stuff. But Jesus is saying, look, anxious panic over how you relate to me and your status before me is incompatible with the new world order that I'm bringing. Jesus is, preaching, is picturing a time when, his, when Christians will actually look forward to a day when God was going to recomplete us in eternity. 
And so the Sabbath day was much more than inactivity, was marked by satisfaction, by, by a sense of calm, by, by an enjoyment of security and joy of how perfectly God has won the salvation for his people. A sense of joy. But here's the deal. Religious people who are religious for being a religious, for religious sake, they don't rest. They don't know how to rest. They can't. Why? Because you're too insecure to. Uh, there's a great writer named John Newton who uh, wrote The uh, Amazing Grace. You need to know his name. John Newton has this collection of letters where he describes an experience that's almost universal for new Christians. He'll say, you know, someone comes along, they come to Christ, and there's a new energy. There's an excitement around what they're doing. You know, they, they want to pray to God. they got a new heart for prayer. They, they get excited about, about serving Him in certain ways. They, they go to Bible studies. Um, they're trying hard to do the right thing. But he says, before too long, suddenly things begin to shift. And instead of sort of doing things because you're thankful for what God has done for you, you suddenly begin to assume that God loves you because you're doing those things. You see? <laughs> you know, they used to be helpless sinners dependent upon God for everything, but eventually you kind of turn into a somewhat well-put-together Christian who, you know, <laughs> we just don't do that. Well, what happened? Well, Newton goes on to say that what happened was is you started resting in your performance of those things rather than resting in Jesus. And it's night and day difference. A Christian, that life for that person is not restful at all because you're always conflicted. And for that reason, you're probably failing. Why? Because you are painfully aware of yourself. It doesn't work. It doesn't help. Somewhere along the path, I heard Keller say something like this one time, you start inferring God's love on the basis of what you've done rather than drawing off of His love purely by His grace. That's a night and day difference there. Jesus is saying, I'm coming to get you off of this treadmill of performance anxiety to get to the root of the problem so that you can come to me on the basis of my grace, which frees you from yourself and brings you a new rest. So that's the first point. Jesus talks about the Sabbath as a new rest. But secondly, he comes to constitute a new people. Every commentator I read thought that it was significant um, that Jesus chooses 12 disciples. And any Jewish person, they say, would have sort of picked up on the, the imagery there that Jesus is doing. Because when God began his plan in the Old Testament to sort of fix the world from this sin that had taken its root in Genesis 1 to 11... He calls Abraham, and he calls Abraham's son Isaac, and he calls Isaac's son Jacob, whose name later turns to Israel, who has 12 sons. And those 12 sons become the tribes of Israel. And the mission that is given to those people were to be agents of God's healing power in the world. They were to carry God's mission to the world outside of the Jewish ethnic boundaries. But of course, as the centuries passed, the exact opposite happened. The Jewish nation became this incredibly self-centered, independent, really hateful of, of all kinds, of not just themselves, but other people on the outside. The Old Testament is the story of how a group of people became so clannish, exclusive, and unloving. So by Jesus choosing 12, it's as if he's kind of looking and saying, you know what, we're just going to start this whole thing over again. 
uh, reset button. We're going to start this new, a brand new people of God. Now, look, before you start to condescend to something that may sound anti-Semitic to you about pegging the Old Testament Jewish people in this way, this is the story of every religious body that ever got together. <laughs> Don't get too high-minded. You know, a group of Christians starts with a vision. They want to serve. You know, they want to impact their neighbors. They're glad to work in the nursery, right? Sign me up. They'll put chairs out every week, and then they welcome people as soon as they walk in the door. But after a while, it just changes. You know, those tasks becomes hard, become hard. Um, we start defining ourselves over and against those people. You know, everything was great until they joined. And that new preacher, is just, he's just annoying to me now. That's all he is. Don't take any hints. Why, though? Because there is a principle at work in every member of these communities that is constantly feeding anxiety into the system. (laughs) That is a self-centering principle that gets preoccupied by my needs first. The Bible calls that principle sin. And what Jesus is saying is, is I'm coming to do something so radical at the crescendo of my mission among you that the power of that sinful principle is going to be crushed. And what's going to happen is this new spirit that's coming in you is actually going to reverse the inertia. (laughs) In other words, instead of this path always going to disintegration, it's going to bring a new integration of the community. So that what Jesus is doing is he's culminating in a new humanity that's going to take up the mantle from these Old Testament believers to set the world to rights by his resurrection power. Look how he's constituting this new community. Now, look, before we move on, I feel like I've got to mention this one small little asterisk at the bottom of the page here. Notice that how interesting it is that Jesus chose leaders out of his followers. Um, we, we get here the beginnings of the constitution, like the literal constitution of this new community, that the Bible will go on to call the church. Now, you may not be aware of this, but the idea of the church as an organization Uh, that is under actual leadership, that, dare I use the word, govern the church, is very offensive to the next generation. Because to them it looks institutionalized, and it looks stale, and it looks sort of formal and kind of stiff. But the truth of the matter is, this is not Christ Presbyterian's idea that we would have elders that would lead us as people. We believe it's Jesus' idea, and Paul was on it, that there are elected officials that come to create actual structure for you. And it's structure that's intended to be a blessing, but it's structure no less. Over and over again through the history of the church, I think you'll find that you really can't be a part of what Jesus is doing in the world without being a member of the church. I know that's offensive. I know it's offensive. I'm sorry. (laughs) But it's just fascinating that Jesus was choosing these leaders to help govern us, our people. And my suspicion is that when we, lose, when we lost sight of that fact, that, that this was not about my needs getting met, that that was precisely when we became sort of insular and ingrown and argumentative and bickering people. It's not the structure that was the problem. The structure actually was our help in that regard to keep the life centered there. But again, I digress. God wants to institute a people, and it begins here. You, by being here this morning, are a legacy of that tradition. Which brings me to the third and final point. And that is that Jesus is establishing a new law. 
He comes out to bring a new rest, a new people, and now a new law. Jesus is establishing a new world order. If you want to be about this revolution, Jesus comes and gives you his famous Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Luke chapter 6, this latter half, is Luke's condensation of the larger uh, Sermon on the Mount that you have in the book of Matthew. So, let's cover the entire Sermon on the Mount in seven minutes, shall we? And I'm going to do you a favor. I'm going to lump it under three big headings. Number one, Jesus says this. He says that if you want to be a part of my sort of uh, new world order I'm bringing, you got to live in reverse of the way the world looks at stuff. Jesus' new world order in this place, poverty is wealth. And hunger is satisfaction. And weeping becomes laughing. In other words, the behavior that's acceptable in the world is literally upside down for what Jesus is going to ask of His people. Christians do not fix their eyes on earthly happiness or riches, but they see this thing called the kingdom of God. By the way, that's the shorthand that Jesus uses for this new world order He's bringing. The kingdom of God. That's what He's talking about. What does that mean for us? Well, Among other things, it means... That when we approach God's law, it's going to feel counterintuitive to us. In other words, there'll be in the months ahead, there'll be a time where you're sitting over a tax return or perhaps a timesheet, and you'll think to yourself, no one would notice this if I cheated. There's not a person in the world, you know what, I can see some clear benefit as to why this would help. But what possible point would there be? What bother would it be if I was not honest in this point? And it's as if Jesus is saying, yeah, go with that question. (laughs) Why go to the bother of being honest when no one else is looking? Why go to the bother about being, having someone who has integrity over every area of life? Good question. Of course it's going to feel counterintuitive, which is why we remind ourselves of it. Secondly, Jesus comes along and says, my followers are to act in the way God acts, which is lovingly. So that you don't just extend these actions to those that you like. Ain't nothing revolutionary about that. We actually are supposed to go to those who hate us, who never thank us for what we're doing for them, who never give us anything in return for what we do for them. The end of verse 35 tells us why. Look at this in chapter 6. But love your enemies. And do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Ooh, (laughs) did you catch that? Look, it's almost as if Jesus is saying, I want you to go and learn to give your resources, to give your care and your energy and your time, to people who you actually suspect might misuse your your privilege, Uh, to people who will never come back and thank you for how much you meant to them, and frankly, who very well may next week be right back at your doorstep asking for the same thing. I want you to learn to relate to that person because until you learn to relate to them, you'll never know what it's like for me to relate to you. I want to talk about something else. Look, I'm not saying that he's saying, you know, to to give money to people that you know will waste it. I mean, there there are good relief agencies and there are not good relief agencies. Uh, There are some people who need hard love and some people that need tough love. But 
It's worth examining that pit that gets in your stomach when you start to think about someone abusing what I've given them. Ha! It's as if they don't even care. Right, Jesus is saying. That's the new principle. Thirdly and finally, Jesus says, my followers are those who are to have integrity. Uh, The word integrity comes from the root word integer, as my math teacher wife tells me, is a whole number. He says, my followers will be whole people. They'll be the same person on the inside that they are on the outside. They'll be the same person with this group of people as they are with this group of people. So what you get is you get in verses 44 and 45 this wonderful explanation of what Jesus is trying to create. Because he understands that our sin has made us schizophrenic. We're not whole people. We're not integrated. And so he says change is going to happen when you start to examine your roots. Notice how he talked about it? Look there at 44 and 45. He says the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. I think this is fascinating. The Bible says, you are what you are. You do what you do because of your treasure. Full stop. In other words, what you value the most in your life is as powerful to you as a root is to a tree. You dig yourself into a career. You, 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 you put down roots into a community, into a vision of your future and your life, into your children's success. Some of you grew up in homes like that. How was that, how was that for you? You can put it into anything, it says. You can make your treasure anything, but if you live for it, it's going to disintegrate you until you find the good treasure. The good treasure is different. I think this is the most revolutionary thing that Jesus says, because in the end, he's saying the revolution is not going to come by indoctrination. It's not going to come by adopting a new set of rules and getting like super disciplined uh, to follow Jesus. Rather, it's going to start in your imagination. That's where the revolution begins. It happens in the place where you value things. In the place where you you daydream about stuff. Or, Or that place that your mind drifts to when your life is hard. Your happy place. <laughs> the place where you return to. What is that spot? Um, the, the, the guy who wrote the little book, The Little Prince, is a Frenchman who had a very complicated name. I literally called a former student who has her PhD in French to learn how to pronounce this guy's name. It is Antoine de Saint-Exupéry. So if you're listening, Hallie Ann, I got it right. I promise you. But in Little Prince, there's this wonderful little quote that says this. It says, if you want to build a ship, don't drum up people to collect wood and don't assign them tasks and work. Rather, teach them to long for the endless immensity of the sea. What's he saying? He says, real revolution in your life takes place when all of a sudden it enters into your passion. That's where the revolution starts. Supported by our intellect, no doubt, but fundamentally originating in your heart, in your belief facility, in the place where you mull over beauties. There's a writer named James K.A. Smith who wrote a wonderful book called You Are What You Love, 
where he talks about some strange research that, that he dug up that goes like this. I'm quoting from him. He says, scholars at UCLA and McMaster University have been conducting experiments that are shedding light on what we call our gut feelings. Their studies point to the way microbes in our stomach affect the neural activity of the brain. Go figure. Your brain is not just another organ they report. It's actually affected by what goes on in the rest of your body. In fact, Scientific American reports that there is an often overlooked network of neurons that are lining our stomachs that's so extensive that some scientists have nicknamed it our second brain. Smith goes on to say, No wonder that when Jesus invites us to follow Him, He does so through eating and drinking. John chapter 6. Discipleship doesn't just touch our head or even our heart, but it reaches our gut, our bellies, our affections. What's he saying? He's saying that God, Jesus' primary appeal is going to be inside your gut, in the place where you just know who he is. Granted, there is transformation, according to Romans 12, that will happen by the renewal of your mind. But this journey with Jesus is going to start in the place where you hold things most dear. That's where it starts. Where attraction finds its power. Where your treasures are treasured. The Bible calls that place the heart. And it calls that activity faith. That's what it's describing. So here's my last question for you as we close. What, has Jesus ever been your treasure? I'm not asking if you prayed a prayer when you were little to ask Him into your heart. I'm not asking whether you walked an aisle and signed a card or something like that. I'm not asking whether you joined the church. Has He ever been something good to you? Um, because you realize that like, there's a lot of religious activity, like going to Bible studies and, and joining a church and, and praying fastidiously, for Pete's sakes, like preaching a sermon that can be done without ever finding Jesus to be, as Jonathan Edwards says, altogether lovely. Look, we've been looking this semester about, you know, um, what we would find compelling about Jesus. Stated simply without these... Without this Jesus, you have no rest. You have no people. You live a fragmented, hypocritical, and self-contradictory life. I don't know. That strikes me as self-evident. Let's pray. Then, Lord Jesus, you're going to have to spell it out for us because we long to know and understand and see you as beautiful. Frankly, Father, for some of us, this may be the first time we've ever heard it put that way. We have looked at you as the big cosmic killjoy who was supposed to, you know, if we just did the right thing, maybe you'd give us a good life. We've looked at you in a thousand different ways, but, but to look at you as if you are a friend, something to treasure, something that is a pearl of great price, that we would leave everything to find it. Lord Jesus, you're going to have to show us that. Because quite frankly, sometimes it just doesn't sense, it doesn't feel that way. Father, enter our guts. Meet us in the place of our imagination that maybe, just maybe, you might be that good and in the end might transform us. Would you do that? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.